Good morning. I'm so glad you're here as we begin this brand new teaching series through the Old Testament book, Isaiah. Now you can see I'm preaching from a slightly different format here. I've got my Bible, I've got some notes, we'll have the verses up here. We're going to walk through chapter 1 of Isaiah verse by verse. So here we go. Now I almost think that the book of Isaiah should come with a warning label. No, the, the problem is not that it's a massive book. It is. It's 66 chapters. The problem is not that it's this symphony of literary excellence, though it is. The, the problem is that God wants to speak to us through this book. Uh, you say, why is, that, why is that something to be warned about? Isaiah is going to show us so much of God and so much of us that that may be uh, more than we bargained for. He's going to usher us into the presence of the holy. As a pastor, it's not my job to protect people from the living God. It's my job to bring people to God and leave them there. If you're looking for Christianity light, this is not your book. This is not going to be your series. But if you're willing to dive in, if you are willing to be before the Holy One of Israel, then let's do this. Now, is that safe? Is that safe for a, for a preacher, for, for a prophet Isaiah to bring the people before God and leave them there? Is that safe? Well, go back to last week's message on who God is. No one ever said God was safe. He's good. So you ready? Let's do it. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. All right, now right there in that first verse, we get a what, a when, and a who. The what? The vision. Not visions, plural, the vision. This is a single unified vision. It's a vision that has many, many themes, particularly it's, Isaiah is going to come back to two themes, themes of judgment and hope. In fact, it's 66 books. The first 39 chapters are often called the book of judgment, and then chapters 40 to 66, the book of comfort or hope. But it starts, you'll notice, with uh, uh, Isaiah giving this uh, prophecy to who? To Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, we'll deal with this more later, but Isaiah, yeah, he's going to talk about the nations, but it starts with the family of God. So that's what it is. It's a vision for the family of God. When? Well, this is about 700 years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah's ministry was a long ministry. Look, it spanned the reign of four kings, and they're named here, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. It's over 50 years. And these were um, uh, kings that provided fairly stable, uh, fairly stable economic times in the nation. We'll, we'll come back to that. Things were fairly stable then. And the who? Isaiah. Isaiah's name is also the message of his book. Isaiah's name. If you, if you forget what the whole book of Isaiah is about, just remember the name. The name Isaiah means the Lord saves. And that's also Isaiah's message, the Lord saves, as opposed to idol saving. You cannot save yourself. You have to humbly admit you need to be rescued. And so with that introduction, he jumps right in. And it's somewhat abrupt. He, he brings us right in verse 2 abruptly into a courtroom 
Court is in session. Some Old Testament scholars call this the grand arraignment. Look at verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. What kind of courtroom is worthy of God Almighty? Heaven and earth are called. This is no ordinary courtroom. This shows the magnitude of what we're dealing with. And he begins by bringing the charges. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Now, this is God as judge, but notice it's also very personal. God as father. Here we have a judge who's being forced to bring these accusations against his own children that he himself reared up. These are rebellious children. The uh, arraignment, the, the charges go on. Verse 3, the ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel doesn't know my, doesn't know. My people do not understand. What's he saying? He's saying sin against God. For God's people to rebel and sin against God is utterly unnatural. The ox and the donkey are being better followers of God than you are. That's what he's saying. The, the ox and the donkey in the ancient Near East were sort of metaphorical. These were not known for being really intelligent animals. And it's saying the dumb ox and the dumb donkey at least have the good sense to know who feeds it. The ox knows, hey, I get food. This, this owner takes care of me. The donkey knows its way to the crib, knows its way to the manger to, to be able to, to find the food. And it's saying Israel doesn't know that. What the ox and the donkey can do, Israel doesn't seem to be able to do. And so heavens and earth, the stars in their courses, and all of nature turn out to be the perfect witnesses. Nature is looking at the people of God going, we get it. We get it. Trees are supposed to glorify God by being trees and, and clams and, 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 and pigs and uh, grass and everything knows how to glorify God. What, what's our problem? What's our holdup? Ah, verse 4, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who do corruptly. Look, you see the pain in the prophet's voice. Each of the titles he gives the people of Israel. Look closely at this verse. Each one is a mark of how far they've fallen. Look, nation, people, offspring, children. They were a nation. They were a people. They're his children, his offspring. But they're a what? They're a sinful nation. They're a people what? Laden with iniquity. They're an offspring of evildoers. They're children who deal corruptly. What does it mean to forsake the Lord? Surely Israel would say, whoa, whoa, we haven't forsaken the Lord or despised the Holy One or utterly estranged. What does it mean to forsake the Lord? It means they're treating the Lord as sort of the last resort. Yeah, when there was problems, then they wanted the Lord, but they weren't treating him as the fountainhead. To use a modern day illustration of forsaking the Lord. Does the Lord control your life? Or is he just there to bail you out in times of trouble? In, in other words, is the Lord the steering wheel in your vehicle or the spare tire in the trunk? You pull him out when you have an accident and put him back in the trunk when the trouble's over. That's what they're being accused of. Now, ironically, in the midst of all this accusation, the nation wasn't feeling it. The nation said, hey, we're doing fine. Isaiah's prophecy, and he, you'll see this throughout the whole book of Isaiah. It's like Isaiah, on all these prophets, it's like they wore bifocal lenses. Do any of you wear bifocals? The idea of a bifocal is just that. You can focus on two things. You, uh, you have something to see up close and something far away. And all these prophecies, he's saying, if you don't repent, this is what's going to happen. Assyria is going to come in here and wipe you out. Babylon's going to come and take. That, that's what's up close. 
but there's something that God is doing. This is a message for all time and eternity. And you'll see that ultimately he's prophesying not just about the destruction and ultimate renewal of this nation of Israel, but of the world and what he wants to do. We're getting ahead of ourselves. The point is the prophet Isaiah realizes he's dealing with a people who are dreadfully sick and they can't see it. So he uses very specific imagery here. He says, you're feeling fine economically. You're not hurting. He says, verse five, why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart faint from the sole of the foot, even to the head. There's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They're pressed out. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. He said, you, this, the image here is of a man who's just been mugged. He said, here you are, you've been mugged and you're just sort of whistling, yeah, everything's fine. You're, you're not okay. He uses another image and this one is particularly poignant because the gathering power in the East, Assyria, is about to lay waste to the whole countryside. So this is a particularly poignant image. Your country lies desolate. See, they can't see it. They're looking around going, no, everything's fine. No, your country lies desolate. Your city's burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left. And here he uses some interesting images, like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. In the uh, harvest time in the ancient Near East, think about it. The farmers lived in the village. You would walk way, way, sometimes far away to your field, then you'd walk back. Well, during harvest time, it wasted too much valuable time to go traveling all the way to your field and coming back. And so these farmers would set up these little humble lean-tos, right? Just little shacks, just something thrown together. It, it doesn't need to have any sort of amenities, nothing fancy, just a little old shack that you would live in during the few weeks of harvest and you go back to your home. Certainly it's not a home. He's saying, can you imagine those lean-tos, those shacks, that's all that's going to be left. That's going to be your home. <laughs> you, you're looking around going, oh, no, we've got all this stuff. No, here's what's coming. You're going to be a hut in a cucumber field. Powerful image. You can't see it. There's a difference in feeling good and being good. John Piper talks about, in his recent book, he talks about uh, he uh, received a prostate cancer diagnosis. And uh, he said it was... Uh, a surreal feeling that um, he felt fine. He was given this terrible diagnosis and the next day he still felt fine. And yet everything changed. He knew, he, he knew there was something wrong, but he didn't it didn't change how he felt. He said, so now when people ask me, how's your health? I always say, I feel good because I'm not bold enough to say I am fine. I am healthy. He said, that's in the hands of God. I don't know. There could be anything going on in me, but I feel good. That's what we have with the children of Israel right now. They feel good, but they're not okay. Now, Israel's probably thinking at this point in Isaiah's vision, oh, come on, we're not that bad. We're not like the pagan nations, are we? He says, that's exactly. Look at verse nine. When you think of God pouring out judgment on a pagan nation, the Israelites' minds, and many people today, they go to the, the, the sort of number one example of this would have been Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, that's what you are. If, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Can you imagine telling that to God's people? Uh, the Lord either owes you judgment or he owes an apology to Sodom. That's how bad things are. It, it's not your light. That, 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 that's who you are. It, the mercy of God is the only reason there's even a hut in a cucumber field. The only reason there's still a lean-to 
a little shack out in the harvest field is because God had mercy. Sodom and Gomorrah got, the prophet is saying, what we deserved. You are not like Sodom, he's saying you are. In fact, in verse 10, he even addresses them. Can you imagine? So hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Calls the, calls the rulers of Judah, the rulers of Sodom. Give ear to, our, to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Can you imagine now? We said, wait a minute, you're talking to God's people. That's right. And here we've come to one of our first key application points. If you wonder, what does this sermon have to do with me? This is a good point to pause and remember. He's talking to Judah. He's talking to his own people. The judgment that starts, starts with God's people. This is a word, not to all those bad sinners out there, you know, and even today, you think, oh, you know, they're like Sodom and Gomorrah, or can you believe what these folks are doing? No, 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 this is looking in the mirror. His message eventually is for everyone, it's universal, but I want you to see it starts in the house of God. The revival of his people, why is this so important? Why would God do that? Here's why, the revival of his people is the hope for the nations. Jesus said, you're the light of, you are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, what, what good is it? You're the salt of the earth. You're, you're how the nations are gonna be reached. You, the salt, what does salt do? Salt brings out the flavor of whatever it's put into. Your job as a Christian is to bring out the God flavors of this world so that people can see God. I didn't see that before. I didn't notice that. That's right, that's your job. Nothing is more important to the state of the world than the state of the church. If the world is not experiencing the grace of God right now, it means we, the church, are being untrue to our destiny. What the world needs is a church that is so obviously saved that the world sees that there's something to convert to. How can we call people to convert to something if the church looks so much like the world, there's no real conversion that happens. People need something to convert to. That's why if Isaiah were here today, I think he might say to Christian believers, the Lord saves. Remember, that's his name, the Lord saves. He would say, the Lord saves beginning with us. Now, he knows what the people are gonna say. He knows, we're in this court of law, what's their defense gonna be? He knows. He knows exactly what they're going to say. They're going to say, now, now, hold on, Isaiah, hold on. Hold on there. You've made some pretty strong accusations. You've said we've left the Lord. You've said we're apostate. You've said we blaspheme God. You say we don't care anything. But Isaiah, will you please notice the temple? Hmm? Will you notice the crowd that shows up on the temple, especially on the high holy days? Will you notice that church attendance has never been better. I want you to notice how many sacrifices that have been killed, how many people there are trampling the courts every day. We're praying all the time, our prayers go up. We are very religious, Isaiah. So how can you say all this? Look at this, look at the, look at the church is full and uh, uh, the giving is up. How, how dare you say we're like Sodom and Gomorrah? That was their line of defense. Here's God's response. What to me? is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. We might say in modern day English, I've had it up to here. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Now, now right there, I, they would say, you did. This is all, 
We're operating in the way of worship that you laid out for us in the Old Testament. Ah, but here's the point. Verse 13, bring no more vain offerings. This literally means an offering of nothingness. Incense is an abomination to me. The very thing that was supposed to smell good as a good aroma stinks. It's a stench. New moon and Sabbath, all these festivals, the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Now, solemn assembly, that in modern day translation, that means exactly what it looks like. That means the gathering together of God's people. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of, hold right there. I'm weary of bearing them. You see this? Can you imagine? In other words, it has gotten to a point where God himself is looking around heaven going, do we have to go to church today? What could possibly bring the God of the universe to a point where even he crosses his arms and says, I don't want to go. Become a burden. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Here, he gets to the root of the problem. And it's this. The act of religious devotion without the heart of obedience is meaningless and abhorrent to God. Let me say it again. The act of religious devotion without the heart of obedience is not only meaningless, it's abhorrent to God. He uses the word hate. It's a vain offering. It's an offering of nothing. It's hollowed out worship. God is saying, I can't endure. I can't take it when iniquity and solemn assembly. Now, now you may think, look, I've got, okay, fine. I've got some unconfessed sin in my life. And more importantly, it's not just the things you've done in the past. It's the things that you're still intending to do. I have no real intention of giving up this particular sin. But that doesn't affect my worship time. See, my worship time's over here. That's, you know, that's the rest of the week. God says, no, 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 you're, you're one person. And it stinks to have that kind of attitude come in and be sort of coated over with this veneer of religious ritual. God's saying your unconfessed sins, and your, more than that, your intention to keep sinning makes worship unendurable to me because sins reveal what you really think about me. I know it seems crazy, but this is all throughout Scripture. Jesus said this. Look, if you're giving your gift at the altar and you remember you got, you got something against your brother, leave your gift. Go get right with your brother. Then come back. Then what? Then your gift will mean something. It's true, isn't it? Like religion, as crazy as it sounds, religion is the most tempting place in the world to hide from God. When I play hide and seek with my kids, I used to think if I really wanted to hide, go run off to the farthest place while they're counting and they'll never find me. I learned over time, really, the best is to hide very close. Then they go run off and they don't realize I'm hiding very close. There are many people who are hiding from God and the way they're hiding, they're covering is the trappings of religion. Well, at least I'm faithful in church. At least I'm, I'm faithful to give. I do these things. God wants to see your heart. He's not fooled by this. Now think about the story of the prodigal son. It's interesting. In the story of the prodigal son, the, the father has two sons. One runs off far away. The other, of course, the older brother stays close. It's interesting. The one in that story who ends up being forgiven and, and, and reconciled with the father is the one who went far away, who chose the irreligious life. The one who missed out on the grace of God, the one in that story, was the one who stayed close by because his heart never turned. He was physically right next to his father, but spiritually he was miles away. God's not upset with the worship practices. He's not saying don't ever have a solemn assembly. He's saying going through the motions with no obedience is meaningless.
And verse 15, he said, you know, I hide my eyes. Can you imagine? If we go back to that verse, I hide my eyes. You see that? I hide my eyes from you. That's the exact opposite of the number six blessing. If you've been to Coleman First Baptist, you know it's no secret. My favorite way to do a benediction, to bless the people before we leave, is to say, may the Lord, what, turn his face towards you. May he look at you. He's saying, I'm going to do the opposite of that. I won't listen. The psalmist says that. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not, would not have listened. It's not that he can't listen. It's that he won't hear. Why? Because when you reach out to pray, all he can think about is there's blood on your hands. You say, there's no blood on my hands. I haven't murdered anyone. No, this could be metaphorical. Sinning and intention to keep sinning. You know, for several years, uh, churches across evangelical America, anyway, were engaged in something called the worship wars. Mostly it was about styles of music. Well, this group felt that, you know, they wanted a, a traditional and only traditional and this group, you know, only modern and some other group wanted this. And, and uh, I don't know that there was any group wanting Gregorian chanting, but probably, you, you get the point. Mostly it was about what? It was about, well, this is what I like. It's what I like. Can you imagine Isaiah in the middle of worship wars? He's saying, Who, what about what God likes? And God, Isaiah would say, I assure you, it's not about a style of music. That is neither here nor there. It's about the heart. Are you worshiping God with your lips or your life? The big discussion right now, of course, and I am in all these meetings and uh, maybe you've talked about it. I've certainly, we've talked about it. We've met as a staff. We've got a plan. Oh, the big discussion is about reopening churches. When are we going to open the doors and physically gather? And it's a good discussion and I appreciate all the wisdom and I certainly appreciate there's folks on all end of this. Uh, and I can, I empathize with, with, you know, of course I want to be back together. I want to open soon. I want to open safe. I want to do all that. Can you imagine, I, I, was, I was studying this passage and I thought about this. I'm on these Zoom calls, you know, and you see, if you've been on a Zoom meeting, you see everybody's face. I imagine, what if we were on a Zoom call and we saw the prophet Isaiah? And it was a Zoom call of pastors and civic leaders and, and governors and presidents. And there's Isaiah. And the question on the table is, when should we reopen churches? What would Isaiah think? You'd hear talks about safety and social distancing and sanitizer and PPE and masks. You'd hear about government regulations and what about freedom and what about the First Amendment? What about phase one and phase two? And what about social distancing? What about the quality of the online experience? I could hear Isaiah muting everyone and saying, you are all discussing about reopening churches and you're forgetting the most important and the most obvious thing, Isaiah would say, do not open the doors of the church until my people repent. Do you think it's all about social distancing? You think the most dangerous thing in the church could be COVID-19? He said the most dangerous thing in the church is sin going through the act of worship. That's what should determine when we open the doors of a church. I would probably end the Zoom call. People would kind of give a sideways glance, but that's what a prophetic word does. It shakes people up. Okay, what does repentance look like? Think about the complexity of religious worship. Think about all that goes in and you want to get this right. No, that's right. Repentance isn't like that. Repentance is dead simple. Look at the simplicity. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Get right. 
Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. It's not hard. You know, it rarely is. Knowing the will of God is rarely the hard part. Doing the will of God is the hard part. Donald Gray Barnhouse uh, used to tell the story of a butcher lived years ago. A butcher who got converted. I love this. Someone said to him, what difference has Jesus Christ made in your life? And he answered without hesitation, I no longer weigh my thumb. <laughs> See, as a butcher, he had been weighing his thumb. He said he could get an, sometimes almost an ounce and sometimes a full ounce. When he would weigh the meat, he would just leave his thumb on that scale a little bit. When he got saved, he didn't weigh his thumb. In fact, he said when customers came in and he knew that he had robbed over the years, he'd, uh, he'd give them an extra ounce or an extra two ounces. That, that is the sweet worship of obedience. Now, if that butcher came to church, God did not care if he sang praise courses, if he sang hymns, if he sang Gregorian chants, or he just stood there silently because when he raised his hands in worship, they were no longer covered in blood. God noticed, right? He, that thumb had been weighing. He had repented. He wasn't just worshiping with lips. He was worshiping with life. Cease to do evil. Begin to do good. In this case, he was defrauding people. And Isaiah talks about that. There's no justice. Correct that oppression. And here's the thing. God is ready to forgive. You're going to see this all through Isaiah. Many people who have read Isaiah feel like they get this sort of whiplash, right? One minute he's judging and then the minute he's comforting. But that's how life is. That's how God is. You've got to see the importance of both of these things. Look at verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing and obedient, notice that, because you can be obedient without willingness. You, that, just, that just goes back to the old problem, right? You can do, go through all the motions. What about your heart? If you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Eat or be eaten. That's what he's saying. God is more ready to receive us with his grace than we can possibly imagine. He's saying, come. That whole, you know, verse 18 is so beautiful for so many people. Come, let us reason together. You know, he's saying, let's talk this over. Give me a chance. Here's my invitation. You present your blood red hands to me in open confession, and I'll wash you clean in the blood of Jesus, and your worship will come alive like never before. There's hope. But immediately, we'll bring this to a close, but immediately you see, yeah, it's okay. Verse 27 he goes right back into judgment mode. Skip ahead. He is starting actually in verse 21 and walking through 26. You'll hear there's, there's if you refuse, right, there, there'll be judgment. Now, the judgment can either destroy or it can be a wake-up call. See, the judgment can destroy, but it can also be the thunderclap to rouse a deaf world. And the goal is what? Redemption. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. I love this verse. How will the Lord redeem and restore? How will the Lord uh, 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 restore? Uh, well, 
objective and subjective. Objectively, he restores by redemption. Christians know on the other side of the Old Testament, we know exactly how that happened. It wasn't by the blood of a bull or a goat or a lamb. It was by the only spotless lamb of God, Jesus Christ. He redeems and subjectively by our experience of repentance. I love that. His redemption, our repentance. Now, of course, our actions don't make us clean, but some preachers go so far to make that point they almost cover up what Isaiah is clearly saying. They'll say things like, now, now, now listen, it's not about the quality of your repentance. That's not why he redeems. And that, that's true. But let Isaiah say what he's saying. The point he wants us to see is the responsibility we do have. Repent. To repent means to turn. Cease doing evil. Start doing good. Of course, without free grace, of course, repentance is meaningless. It has no value. It's worthless. But Isaiah's point is, unless the people repent, God's grace can't be applied to them. One last warning as we close. If you do not choose the living God, make no mistake, you still will choose a God. He goes on, rebels and sinners will be broken together. Those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Why? Look at verse 29, because you eventually become like what you worship. And if you don't worship the living God, the Holy One of Israel, you'll worship what? Well, oaks, gardens. What's he talking about here? These are the fertility gods of the ancient Near East. Their sacred sites weren't churches or temples. They were oak trees, right? For fertility, strength, wealth, or gardens, fertility, the, the bounty of the harvest. He says, there'll come a day when, when you put your faith in idols, you'll be ashamed. Oaks that you desire. You'll blush for the gardens that you've chosen. You've chosen poorly. You're gonna, you, you've made your choice. You're going to have to stand to it. You've made your bed. You're going to have to lie in it. There's going to be a judgment day. And those idols are all you're going to have to save you. And what's going to happen? Verse 30, you'll be like an oak whose leaf withers. Garden without water. See, if you put your strength in the oak, whether that's the gross domestic product of a country or the economy or your bank account or your popularity or your power or your own might, your own intelligence, your good looks, your talents, whatever it is, your comfort, your security. If you put your trust in a garden, I've got all this comfort. I've got all this backup plan to my backup plan. I've got this savings account. I've got, you got to understand, if you put your faith in the oak or the garden, Oak's leaf will eventually wither. The garden will run out of water. So don't place your faith in the oak or the garden. You place your faith in the maker of the oak, in the maker of the garden, living water that never runs out. The strong shall become tender. The work, his work is spark. Both of them shall burn together with none to quench him. And this is how he concludes this first chapter. What's his point? People who fancy themselves strong, self-sufficiency, and man-made gods are a combination like tender and a spark, like a match and gasoline. It's going to end in destruction. Well, how do we apply this first chapter of Isaiah? This is a preface to the whole book. We apply this first chapter by simply saying this. God takes sin more seriously than you do. And at the same time, God takes grace more seriously than you do. God takes sin more seriously than you do. And at the same time, God takes grace more seriously than you do. You know, there's an old trick for those of you that are, I, I, I don't know which part of this message you need to apply. I want to pray for you and I want you to apply this message. But here's where it's tough for me as a pastor. I don't know which part of this message you need to apply. 
there's a certain application for one group of people, a certain application for another group of people, and the irony is, a lot of times, we're that same group of people. We need to hear both. Here, here it is. There's an old trick of Satan, and we need the truth that undoes this lie. And here's how it works. Maybe you've experienced this. Before you sin, before you sin, during the temptation phase, Satan wants to convince you that sin is no big deal. There's grace. Don't worry about it. Sin's no big deal. Go ahead. Do the sin. There's grace. He'll forgive. It's no big deal. He wants to make too little of sin and too much of grace. Then after you sin, he, the temptation flips. Now it's the opposite. Now after you do a sin, Satan wants you to think that there is no forgiveness. There's no way. Hang it up. You may as never well even approach God. He wants to make too much of sin and too little of grace. Isn't that interesting? The key to fight that lie is the truth of Isaiah 1. That it's more. Sin is more serious than we could ever think. And we better wake up to that fact. And grace is more glorious than we could ever dream. That's the truth. So some of you need to be challenged. You're in a season where you are before. You're sort of in a season of temptation. And you're, you're weighing it out. And you know there's sin looming out there. Be challenged. Don't sin. Don't go there. Sin is a big deal. Wake up. If you do, destruction awaits. Others of you need to be comforted. You, you've sinned. You, you've been made aware of your sin. You're in a spirit of repentance. And the, 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 the danger right now is that you'll, you'll be in so much despair that you'll miss the grace. Don't despair. Repent. He is ready to forgive. Though your sin's like crimson, like scarlet, they become like wool. Now, as I said, that may be the same person who needs to hear that, but that's the application. And that's where Isaiah, all through, you're, we're going to see these themes of, of judgment and comfort. Let's repent, church, and let's be prepared. When we can gather back together, let's be a people who don't just worship with our lips, but with our life. Let's pray. God, thank you for this prophet. Thank you, O oh God, that though he spoke, because it's your word, he still speaks, present tense, to us. Thank you, God, for something that was written so long ago to sound so modern. We need this word. God, I pray for anyone who's battling sin and temptation right now. God, I pray that they receive the seriousness of this warning, that they take that sin seriously. But I also pray for anyone on the other side who's been so beaten up and ready to repent, who thinks there's no hope for them, that they know that you stand ready to receive and to forgive that repentant sinner. God, grant us a life that worships you not just with our lips, but with our whole life. We give you thanks for this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Wherever you are, would you stand to your feet for the benediction? May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all God's people said, amen and amen. I love you. Have a great week. Looking forward to the next part of Isaiah.